Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Since we spoke last, it's been an amazing week um, in all of the wrong ways. Uh, pretty depressing stuff out there. You know, every news story we're hearing from Ukraine uh, gets more and more depressing. Um, the, I, I guess there's so many different aspects this one can look at, but um, I guess we're not war experts um, or we're not war strategy experts, but looking at the whole ec- economic mess at this stage, um, I have to say, I am frankly quite confused about the economic implications of all of this. Um, yesterday, I spoke at a strategy meeting for a company and I was talking about Ireland over the next five years, what it was going to look like. And I was citing the statistics on growth that I wrote about in our Stubstack account last week. Uh, GDP growth up 13, 13.5% last year, uh, consumption up 5.7%. And um, modified domestic demand, you know, stripping out all of the nebulous stuff up by six and a half percent. So a very rosy economic picture in Ireland in 2021. And it has carried over into 2022. Uh, The exchequer returns for the first two months of the year have once again been exceptionally strong with very strong growth in income tax and VAT revenues, particularly, which is a real indicator of strong economic activity. Um, the unemployment situation continues to improve. You know, labor shortages are becoming more and more evident. Um, and yet we have a situation out there where the whole 
economic outlook globally and particularly in Europe has fundamentally changed over the last three weeks or has it? I guess that's the question that I am struggling with at the moment. Um, we got the latest inflation numbers for Ireland for February, the highest level in 21 years, a 5.6% rate. Uh, nothing terribly surprising in the breakdown Services sector inflation is running at 4.4%, but goods price inflation is running at 7.1%. And this has, of course, been a feature everywhere of this global inflation problem. It's mainly been driven by the goods side, but it's clearly feeding into the services side at this stage. But looking down through the various price increases, uh, no surprises, uh, natural gas up 29.5%. Home heating oil up by 53.7%, electricity 22%, petrol 30%, diesel 32%. And our old friend, the housing market, or at least private rents, up by 9.2%. Um, I think one of, so nothing remotely surprising about all of that. But one area that we're seeing inflation starting to creep in is on the food side. 2.9% uh, year-on-year growth in average food prices in February. Um, and that's the highest rate of inflation we've seen in food, I think, in over 20 years, because food prices for 20 years have been pretty much declining. So we're starting to see food price inflation feeding into the system. And uh, within that, interestingly, bread prices up by 8%. And that's reflecting uh, the impact of... Um, wheat out of the Ukraine and Russia, or at least the potential impact. And um, I think it's also reflecting the fact, the whole, the general food thing is reflecting the fact that the costs of food production are increasing dramatically. Uh, potash, which is a major export out of Russia, um, you know, is in obviously serious doubt at this stage. And potash is a major input to fertilizer, which is a major input to growing food um so and and then of course um all of those energy costs feed into agricultural costs as well so there's really um a food story starting to build here but, but anyway going back to where i started uh, you look at the very rosy situation the irish economy you look at the the impact that the war is having particularly on inflation that continues to feed through uh but Personally, I could come very, very depressed about the impact this is going to have on the European economy. So um, I'm really at a loss at the moment to try and apply sensible economic analysis to what's going on. You're right. It is, it is very difficult because, as we've often remarked on this podcast, the answer to whatever question being asked is often it all depends. And in the context of this ghastly war, as always, it seems a bit crass thinking about the economic consequences when we see the the implications for, for people's lives, um, hospitals being bombed and all the rest of it. It does seem a bit a bit crass to be talking about economics, but um, that's what this podcast does. Um, if it lasts, Jim, then the outlook is, is, I think you're right to be depressed, to be honest, because the things that you've discussed there are absolutely front and centre of what we should all be thinking about. Um, energy, of course, is a huge part of this and the uh, moral and ethical arguments for banning imports of Russian oil and gas into Europe, I think are 
in, in, are impeccable. We we should be doing it, and we should be doing it instantly. So I'm uh, disappointed and a little baffled as to why the UK has said that it is going to start phasing out Russian oil imports, but not until the end of the year. And Schultz in Germany has basically said no; they're still going to continue importing Russian oil at least um, for all sorts of, I think, specious reasons. I think these these things should stop. Not least because there is a financial dimension to this, because that every day Russia is getting, I think, between one and two billion dollars of revenues from uh, purchases of its oil and gas, and those go straight into its war machine. So there is a link between economics and the war here, and uh, we, we we need to, we need to sever that link. I think until that link is severed, sanctions are going to make not some difference, but they're not going to be persuasive, at least from a Russian Putin perspective. So I think there's a huge issue um, still to come with oil and gas. But the issue that we already face, of course, are the high prices. And in the UK, I reckon that my own household energy bill is probably over the next 12 months relative to the last 12 going to treble. Um, And for the average household, that means that uh, 1,200 quid was your bill before. And it's going to be between three and four grand a year now. So that's huge. So the first thing an economist would say is that that that, that clearly is inflationary in the sense that it will add to to the overall price level going up. And we're seeing that in the way forecasts for inflation are being both raised and elongated. And I think this is true of every country, not just the UK, but also Ireland and the United States and everywhere else, that the peak in inflation is now likely to be in double digits, Jim, over 10% sometime this year, possibly quite soon. And it's not going to come down very fast uh, this year if it comes down at all. And um, the sort of numbers that are being penciled in, it's only penciled in, it's, it's, it can only be penciled in because it depends on how long this war goes on. Um, the, the higher inflation lasts well into 2023 now on most people's forecasts. But all of these forecasts are very, very tentative. The other thing an economist would say about that rise in energy prices is that it's a huge bite out of everybody's income. So at the end of the day, it's, uh, funnily enough, disinflationary um, because it, it's a transfer of income from oil consumers, energy consumers to energy producers, and it will result in demand destruction, not least for energy itself. The price mechanism will work. So ultimately, it takes a bite out of real income. So it takes a bite out of real economic growth and to the point where you start wondering about recession. I've seen people speculate that Europe might already be in recession as a result of this bite to income. And it's perfectly possible that we'll have a recession as a result of this, uh, both in Europe and, and elsewhere. Well, Chris, can I, can I stop you a second? Sure. Um, We've debated a lot over the last number of months about inflation and the interest rate situation. And three weeks ago, prior to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, you know, I believe that the European Central Bank was wrong to be so relaxed that inflation was becoming more of a problem and that the European Central Bank uh, would increase interest rates before the end of 2022. Uh, The last time we spoke, the war was in full swing, and uh, I conceded at that stage that I was wrong, that the ECB couldn't possibly increase interest rates against that sort of backdrop, and um, you admitted you were right for the wrong reasons. And today, 
I think the ball is back in my court again. Uh, European Central Bank meeting today, which I found kind of bizarre, actually, listening to what was said. Um, Christine Lagarde, the president of the European Central Bank, described this war as a watershed moment for Europe, uh, whatever that means. Um, She then turned around and announced that she was going to accelerate the tapering process. And what we mean by the tapering process is to reduce the monthly bond buying, which is part of the quantitative easing response to COVID over the last couple of years. And indeed, it has been a major policy response in many central banks since the great financial crisis to varying degrees and over, over different time periods. But she said that she was going to accelerate the rundown of this bond buying program. She was going to go from 40 billion per, per, for April to 20 billion in June, and that it would end altogether in the third quarter. Previously, the view was that she was going to reduce it to 20 billion by October and then eliminate it. So what that basically means is that they are going to stop injecting um, liquidity into the uh, European economy and the European banking system. And there was also a suggestion then that interest rate rises would come sometime after. Okay, whatever sometime after means, we've no idea. But she also said, which I found interesting, that the incoming data support the expectation that the medium term inflation outlook will not weaken. Um, You know, that is a total about turn from where the ECB was a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, Philip Lane um, was very, very adamant about the transitory nature. And I, I, I grant you, We've had the war coming in between, and that obviously has changed the inflation outlook because of the impact on energy. But uh, I, I find it quite bizarre, actually, that the European Central Bank would contemplate um, tightening monetary policy and ultimately increasing interest rates against the sort of background that we've described of war in Europe. Well, I think they're taking a very literal interpretation of their mandate which is for price stability defined to be inflation close to two percent or some such form of words and if you are going to be literal about what it is you are mandated by law by european law to do i can't see if you're christine lagarde if you can do anything else she can't stand up and say well we are going to look at inflation at five six seven eight percent possibly higher depending on how long all of this goes on and do nothing about it, because she's she is, as I understand it, breaking the law, and so it's putting the ball back in politicians who essentially gave her the mandate that the ECB has, and she's saying my hands are tied. So I grant you that from a helicopter view, the ECB being almost intransigent when it comes to facing up to the shock that is the war, the economic and political and personal shock that is the war, is simply saying. The rules are the, of the game, of our game, have been set a long time ago. They haven't been changed, and therefore we we must react in the way that we are, and that is to take our feet foot off the monetary accelerator, reduce the bond buying, which is the money printing, if you like, um, and ultimately, possibly as soon as the final quarter of this year, raise interest rates. Now, I think she ha- from a political point of view, you can almost see that she has to say that, But I think circumstances are going to dictate what she does next. And what she does next could be very, very different to that kind of narrative that that she put forward today. Because clearly, she operates in the real world, not in some theoretical one. 
And I suspect the politicians, one or two of them, will have been on the phone to her already. And she's going to come under an awful lot of political pressure to to uh, play ball, if you like, with keep, keeping things as easy as possible. Um, where, where that debate goes, because obviously in Germany, which, which has the anti-inflation history thing that we all know, um, which way does Germany want Lagarde to go in this? Um, that will be critical. Um, I, I find it hard to call that one because I think Germany clearly has been profoundly affected by this war in all sorts of ways. Its decision to increase public spending on on defence to in excess of 2% of GDP to finally match its NATO commitments, as we know, is a huge, huge shift politically and socially and economically for Germany. So maybe they will be a little bit more tolerant of inflation than they would otherwise have been as a result of this war. And if so, then Lagarde's going to come under an awful lot of pressure to be more accommodating. But this is going to play out uh, politically in a dynamic sort of way over the next few months as things develop. And my my base case is that central banks everywhere are just going to have to accommodate a higher inflation rate for longer and not do too much about it. And my bet, therefore, is that we will not see interest rate rises from the ECB this year, no matter what she's saying today. Yeah, I, I would I would absolutely agree with that. I think it would be an absolutely uh, bizarre thing to do. Presumably, the US Federal Reserve will move next week, quarter percent. Yeah, geography seems to be making a difference here. And you can see it both in the performance of, of US financial assets, volatile though they've been. They've not been nearly as volatile as German uh, assets, for example. The German equity market is really all over the place at the moment. Um, but the US equity market has, has fallen, but uh, perhaps not as much as you might have thought, given the proximity of war. Um, uh, and I think the, the Federal Reserve can be taking a slightly more uh, laid back stance and saying, well, this means we're not going to be raising interest rates as much as we previously wanted to, but we're still going to be raising rates. Yeah, because the US economy is still um, doing fantastically well. Um, the disappearance of many workers is causing problems in the labor market. And I do think that the Federal Reserve believes it has to cool things down. Um, again, how much it has to do with respect to interest rates over the course of the net remainder of this year going into next will depend on lots of things, not least the war itself, but also whether the US economy comes under strain as a result of higher energy prices. Because the, the idea of $5 uh, a gallon for gas um, is, is causing political problems and it will also cause economic ones because, again, it's that bite out of real incomes. Um, Biden is getting blamed for the price of gasoline, um, bizarrely. So everybody's with him on blaming the war for all sorts of things and blaming the war, you know, blaming the Russians, but the, the price of gasoline seems to rest with, with Biden. It's a bizarre country. It really is. Yeah, the, um, the, the US ban on oil imports from Russia uh, was, was obviously a reasonably strong statement, but I was looking into uh, you know the real dynamics of that. Apparently, uh, the United States accounts for about accounts for around six hundred thousand barrels of oil per day from Russia, and that's about ten percent of Russian exports. So, the United States is not a huge market for Russian oil. Okay, ten percent is significant, but it is not that significant. So, for example, uh, Russia, I think, exports around three million barrels of oil per day into the European Union. So um, a European ban would have much more of an impact. But then 
there there is the question about the whole global oil supply situation. Um, you know, even if I, I assume that Russia will seek to increase its exports to China, definitely, possibly India, okay, to compensate for some of the market it's losing. Um, and uh, you, you, you kind of wonder, even, even if Europe did impose a ban on oil imports from Russia, um, I think Russia would probably turn around and be able to find alternative markets for its oil, unfortunately. It'd be disruptive. Um, it would require a different way. You know, a lot of it to China would have to be shipped because the oil pipelines are at full capacity. But uh, it's an interesting dynamic. And what's your sense on how the sanctions are actually impacting on Russia at this stage? Well, it's, it's quite clear that, that the, um, the sanctions that have been announced are having an impact. The, the, the empty shops, empty shelves of, of certain key goods, the so-called self-sanctioning of um, many companies, uh, we, the list grows every day. The accounting firms are pulling out. We heard that the global investment banking giant Goldman Sachs announced today that it's pulling out of Russia. Levi Jeans are suspending operations there, if not pulling out altogether. Um, so I think it, 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 it the sanctions are having an impact uh are they having a big enough impact to actually change anybody's mind in russia particularly putin's mind i think no i think the one thing that needs to be done as i said earlier is the um is a complete ban by europe included to join the united states on russian oil and gas uh, one of the people that we have regularly or intermittently at least uh, cited on this podcast is, is a brilliant economics and finance writer, Martin Sanbu for the Financial Times. And he's been banging this particular drum a lot. And I would urge anybody, if they've got access to the FT, I think unfortunately is behind a paywall. But um, he takes on this one and uh, takes on Schultz, for example, the German Chancellor. And he says quite explicitly that Schultz's argument about why we should not ban Russian imports of oil and gas um, he says is flawed, and um, it, it just it is is wrong, and we in any event need to be ready for uh, not importing Russian oil and gas because the Russians themselves might decide to cut it off as as a weapon of war. So the the, the critical thing about making these types of sanctions work is that you 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 don't just say right we're not importing any more oil and gas. Because as you rightly said, Jim, these things are fungible so that they can be sold somewhere else. And a barrel of oil is a barrel of oil is a barrel of oil. And so what you must do is that you must also supplement your ban on imports of oil and gas with additional sanctions or threats of sanctions on anybody, on any oil traders, banks, anybody that facilitates this trade in Russian oil anywhere in the world is shut off from the American financial system, from American banks. And that, for example, has had a huge impact on companies that have traded with Iran. That's had it, those sorts of financial sanctions threats um, have affected a lot of companies across a range of products in, from dealing with Iran. So I, I, I would totally support um, Sanbu's arguments. I think, he's, it, I think it, it's a moral argument. It's an ethical argument. And I also think it's an economic one. And it's also a military one because this money is financing Russia's war machine. And if, if you're going to be giving these people um, between $1 and $2 billion a day of your money, 
uh, you can't expect there to be a, a, a military outcome that, that you would like. If you want sanctions to bite, if you want sanctions to work in the way that you, you hope they were, because historically most sanctions, that when they've been applied in most cases, have not worked. Um, there, there are one or two episodes in history where they have. And interestingly, um, it's uh, the, the most prominent example I can think of is a financial sanction rather than hitting goods and services. It's the threat on finances. And it was the pressure that the Americans put on the UK and in particular the UK currency when they invaded Suez in the late 1950s um, that caused the Brits to re- change course. So the only sanction that I can think of that's ever worked historically has been a, a blue-on-blue sanction, if you like, a sanction between two erstwhile allies, and it was financial, and it was related to the currency, and it worked. It's very You're very hard-pressed to find uh, sanctions producing big changes in policy, but that one, the British invasion of Suez, is one, and it was, it was financial. And I think this is what you've got to do now. You've got to focus very much on the financial and the financial backing to um, the oil and gas sanctions, which have to come, um, in my opinion. Otherwise, you're just giving um, the Russian regime the money it needs to continue fighting the war and indeed to escalate the war if, it, if, it, if it's necessary. So I, I, I am a huge proponent of saying, I, I think it's more important, for example, from, from um, an economic perspective, I'm not, I won't go into the humanity of it, but certainly the debate over a no-fly zone is a trickier debate a more difficult debate, at least for me, to resolve in my own head than the, the sanctions on oil and gas debate. The sanctions on oil and gas strike me as being that old cliche, the no-brainer. Yeah, yeah. No, I, w- I wouldn't disagree with you. Um, in response to our last podcast where I had a go at two Irish MEPs, Claire Daly and Mick Wallace, about their voting record in the European Parliament and about, I think, a fairly explicit pro-Putin stance for quite some time now, um, I got an email basically suggesting that I was buying into this uh, populist narrative about those two and that uh, I should listen closely to what they say and that there is another side to the story. And um, I, I took it as a little bit of a personal insult, to, uh, the suggestion that I actually haven't considered both sides of this. But in this particular situation, and I've gone back and I've listened to what the two of them are saying and um, I remain unmoved in my view um, as an Irish person, having those two representing us in the European Parliament, quite frankly, is a serious embarrassment. Uh, that's personally how I feel about it. And I really hope the Irish electorate actually remembers this when the next European elections are on. Um, I think anybody that could remotely take a pro or sympathetic Putin view at the moment, you know, deserves to be... Um, taken out i think it's it's well taken out and exposed i should say okay um i i think it's just such a clear-cut one-way argument at the moment and the more you see coming out of ukraine at the moment um in terms of the human impact of this you know the more convinced i become in that particular argument um in in some ways it's i i also you know had a go in the last podcast at Donald Trump and Boris Johnson and basically said that the activities of those two really, I think, um, gave Putin, they put spring in his step in the sense that Boris was um, happily dividing the European Union and 
Trump was happily dividing the United States and also creating a wedge between the United States and Europe. And uh, I always believed those two policies were dangerous in the sense that, you know, in the face of the emergence of China, it was never more necessary for uh, the Western world to be united. Uh, but then, and, and I wouldn't have really included Russia as one of, as a threat alongside China, but obviously uh, that, that has changed over the last month. But I think Putin has looked at this divisiveness that was created by those two politicians and has actually, you know, it, it has given him something to exploit. And unfortunately, he's done it with serious economic costs. So I really do hope that people remember the fundamental role that Boris Johnson and Donald Trump and indeed a lot of others have had in this particular situation. Um, going back to, and in response to those comments, I am, um, you know, I, I, I was sort of accused of blaming the far left as in Wallace and Daly as um, giving life to Putin. That's exactly not what I was saying. Um, I was just mentioning those two as, uh, being a huge source of embarrassment to the Ireland that I believe in, and um, I, it's 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 an absolutely bizarre situation. Yeah, the, both the extreme left and the extreme right have um, are fans of Putin around the world, and that they come at it from similar and different perspectives. I think that the one common element is the admiration they have for strong autocratic rule. The extreme left and the extreme right both like that kind of strong man. Often, often man, strong man type thing. And the, the extreme left and the extreme right are not great fans of democratic processes. They pay lip service to democracy, but they're not true believers in it. They, they believe in, in, in the rule of an elite, um, usually themselves. And where, where we stand on all of this, when all of this hopefully is over, um, I think we'll, we'll determine where our societies and cultures go. Because as you say, uh, Putin and Xi Jinping have observed that the West is divided. Uh, in their opinion, the West is decadent and is going the way of Roman, ancient Roman and Greek civilizations and deserves to die as a culture, as a civilization, and that their way of doing things will uh, prevail. And the West is doomed. And if people like Donald Trump come back to power and that parties of either the extreme left or the extreme right, populism in particular, but also in general, if that, do, if that way of doing, if our old way of doing things prevails, then I think Xi Jinping and Putin are probably right. We are doomed, actually. I think and, and unless we do have a profound change in our politics from the direction that we were traveling in before, which is in countries like the UK to elect populist morons like Boris Johnson, in the United States to elect uh, people like Donald Trump and the way in which the Republican Party has been completely taken over by Trumpism, the way in which Ireland is heading for a Sinn Féin government, unless some or all of that changes, then I think we've, we, I think that the diagnosis of Putin and Xi Jinping is absolutely right. We are decadent and we will go the way of the Romans and the Greeks. I wouldn't suggest for a second that the policies that they're pursuing as a result of that correct diagnosis are also correct. Of course not. But they are exploiting um, the, the decadent politics that we have indulged ourselves with for years now. And um, I would be very pessimistic about our long-term future if, if that were not to change. 
But I actually think there is a good chance, and of course it's only a chance, that that is going to change, that we are going to get a different politics now. But it requires, you know, people to stand up and be counted and say stuff and call these people out for the for the for the quite wicked um, type of politicians that that they actually are. Um, and I think there's a reasonable chance that that we will get that. Um, it's by no means certain. It's incredibly disappointing to see Boris Johnson's popularity rise in the United Kingdom, as people say that this is his equivalent of the Falklands War that boosted Margaret Thatcher's um, election um, potential. I don't know how. <coughs> excuse me. I don't know how permanent that is, but um, I do think there's a lot of political water to flow under the bridge over the next while. Yeah, I, I heard Pretty Patel being described this morning as somebody. Um, if you're on a life support and she needed to charge her mobile phone, she'd plug out the life support and plug in her phone. Um, yeah. But but but, but yeah, the UK government is um, quite popular as a result of all of this. It's 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 mad stuff. I'll just leave you with a parting comment here on going back to the whole energy situation. Um, I received. Um, an email from, or sorry, a WhatsApp message from a good friend there a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it was a petition to sign um, against a wind farm um, in the Southwest. And, um, you know, I said I wouldn't sign it. And um, <laughs> I, I, I think I pissed him off a little bit, to be honest, by refusing. But a couple of things struck me. Number one, when you look at the stranglehold that, Russian energy has over us at the moment is really, really should drive the agenda for approaching self-sufficiency in energy. And I Absolutely. think... Absolutely. You know, Jim, I talked about the need for, yeah. for profound political change. Mm. And one very small aspect of that is that we, we have to stop this nonsense about no new wind farms, all this nimbyism, um, all of these things that we do that are essentially quite selfish. We can't, you know, we're not allowed to build anything anywhere, not least wind farms. But, you know, um, it, it, this, this has to change. We all have to change. And we all have to make sacrifices. The notion that I and people like me up here in Dublin would sign a petition against a wind farm without even seeing where the wind farm was going to be located, you know, what impact it's going to have. It just shows you how screwed up the whole situation is at the moment. Let's yeah. hope that changes. Thanks, Absolutely. Chris. Cheers, Jim. All the best, Thank mate. Bye. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods 
for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.